Let's start uh, with the scripture this morning. We're going to start Mark chapter 11 story and begin reading in verse 15. It says, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, notice that phrase, as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So we've been talking about prayer, and I want to look at this story this morning as we continue along this journey. Now, it's interesting to me, this phrase, and I called your attention to it. It says, as he taught them, he said. So I always kind of had in my mind that Jesus went into the temple and he he kicked butt, right? <laughs> he took names and whatever. And, and you know, and then just kind of gives out this thing, you know, kind of spontaneously. Uh, my, house, my father's house should be a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves or a den of robbers. And that, that's kind of how I pictured that. But I was, as I was reading it and preparing for this, I noticed that phrase, as he taught them, he said. So that means he said a lot more. It also means that his cleansing the temple was a teaching. It was an object lesson that then he is explaining later, right? So as I thought about it some more, I thought, well, why did this story versus uh, some other story about Jesus, why is this one included in the Gospels? Because everything that's in the Gospels is there for us. In other words, it's not just there for historical information. If you think about it, think about all the biographies maybe that you've seen. I've got biographies of, you know, presidents or famous people in my library that are this thick, (laughs) And the biographical information that we have about Jesus is about this thick. Right? So why did the writers include that? Particularly John, in his gospel, he said, if if we wrote about everything that Jesus did, there wouldn't be books enough in the world to fill for all of the stuff that he did and all the stuff that he taught. So why did Mark select that particular passage? And so that got me thinking there has to be something in there for us and about us and about prayer and about us as the temple of God. If you compare scripture, Paul said very clearly in several places, he said that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In fact, in one place, he said your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so I got to thinking, what what would it be like to have my temple cleansed? And so then I had to ask myself, What are the thieves or what are the robbers that are inside of my own temple? (laughs) So we've been talking about this sort of this prayer of the heart. And we've been saying that, that your feelings, your emotions are very much an important part of this. That in fact, feeling is the language uh, that of, of prayer that we speak to creation. And so one of the things that's been brought up to me by a number of people as we've been going through this series is what do I do if I have a toxic state? Everybody understand what I mean by a toxic state? Like, uh, you know, what, what if I'm feeling angry? What if I'm feeling afraid? What if I'm feeling hatred? 
uh, how do I deal with those things? And so I think that we can kind of look at those things as the thieves and the robbers that are in our temple, that rob us of joy, that rob us of peace, that rob us of really the power that we're supposed to have as followers of Christ. And so then the question becomes, how do we, how does our temple, what's the process by which our temple gets cleansed. Now, let me just step back for a minute and say, I believe that there is no such thing as a bad emotion. I don't think there's a negative emotion. That's why I framed it the way I did. I said toxic states versus negative feelings or negative emotions. Because in reality, every emotion that you have is a resource in the right context. And when it's managed effectively and appropriately... So, for example, anger is there for you and I to be able to take a stand, to be able to recognize, perhaps, when a boundary has been inappropriately violated and to give us the strength to reestablish that boundary or to fill us, perhaps, at times with sort of a really a righteous indignation when we watch others suffering or others being victimized so that we we have uh, uh, the energy to have a voice and to take a stand and stand up for something or stand up for someone. And so anger can be a very resourceful emotion. How many of you know fear can be a very resourceful emotion? Fear will save your life if it's in the right context. And even hate. Some people say, well, we're not supposed to hate. But if you say you're not supposed to hate and you want to label that as evil, then you've got a real problem with Scripture because in Hebrews chapter 1, in talking about Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says that he loved righteousness, but he hated Iniquity. So there's nothing wrong with any emotion that you and I may experience, but we have to be able to manage those emotions appropriately when it becomes toxic. So so the issue is, when does it become toxic? And when it becomes toxic is when it's no longer serving our benefit or the benefit of the kingdom of God or a righteous purpose, but now it's something that's sucking the life out of us. Now it's something that's robbing us of joy and faith and power and life and peace and victory. And we're stuck in that state. Anybody besides me ever been stuck there? And so in thinking about this whole process of of Jesus went into the courts and he cleansed the temple. And so maybe we need to understand something about our own bodies. If our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, then maybe we need to understand how our courts function and how our courts operate. And so I found this little video about some cutting edge science that they're doing. Amazing Uh, discoveries that came out of this experiment. So I want you to watch this, but I want you to watch this thinking about this is how your temple courts work. All right. We did an experiment here at Harvard to study how the information flows between the heart and the brain. And we actually discovered something quite remarkable, something that surprised us. Yeah, they 
heart seemed to know the images before the participants ever saw the images with their eyes. The future picture was going to be one of the emotionally arousing images. The heart rate started to drop about five seconds before the image was randomly selected to be shown on the screen. So nobody could know what this future picture was going to be. interesting, huh? Main thing I want you to get out, I mean, there's a lot of different ways we could go with that information. But for our purposes today, the main thing I want you to see is the flow of information that he talked about coming intuitively from the heart first. So in other words, the heart knew, at least on some level, what it was going to see before the picture was ever even selected. So there's an intuition from the heart before the event actually occurs. So the information goes from the heart, then to the brain. Then the brain sends a signal to the rest of the body, and the body has a felt experience, right? So that what you end up with, actually, is sort of a feedback loop of information. So here's how this works. Before the event occurs, something's coming from your heart. A signal is coming from your heart and being sent to your brain. Now, we all know that our brain is where our cognitive thinking, the, the voice in our head functions, right? So this is where our, our thoughts and our beliefs and all of this begins to come into play. But before we even experience an event, there's already been an interaction, uh, an intuitive interaction between our heart and between our brain that activates something. And then once our thoughts get activated, it sends a feeling to the rest of our body that they went, that we then experience, right? But now, when you have a feeling in your body, what does your nervous system do when you feel something? Where, is the, where does it go? The information. It goes back to your brain, right? So you have a feedback loop. You have the brain sending information to the body, but then the body taking that information that really was sent from the brain, sending it back to your mind, so that actually you have a filter before you have the experience. So you can look at it this way. You begin to intuit what's going to happen, and a signal comes from your heart and goes to your head, and that, that activates your belief system, which is the filter now through which you're going to experience something. So you're already thinking about what you're going to experience before you experience it. Now it's happening so fast you can't consciously catch it. 
then you're having an experience and based on that feeling, now you're reinterpreting that in your brain. And so, so your thoughts eventually end up developing stories or end up developing narratives about how life works or about how um, you're built or, or uh, in anticipation of, of, you know, all these things that are going to happen to you. So if you have a a traumatic experience, if you have a, a bad experience with another person, uh, then what's happening is a signal is coming from your heart first. And whatever your heart is sending, then your head is, is interpreting and you're telling yourself a story. And, and probably more likely than not, you're telling yourself some kind of a victim villain story. <laughs> right? And then it's generating these feelings. And so, so there's this whole thing that's going on between the heart, the brain, the body, the nervous system, this whole feedback loop that's, that's happening inside of us. And what happens is, is those things can become like the thieves and the robbers in our temple when they are unresolved. So let's say, for example, you have a conflict with somebody, right? Someone who's significant to you could be a spouse, could be a a relative, could be a coworker. But you have some kind of a a conflict and you feel wronged. And perhaps you were genuinely wronged, not just a feeling, but but you were genuinely wronged in the situation. Right. And so you go into this sort of uh, mental and emotional conflict state that you're experiencing throughout your body. Right. And then you resolve it out here, like you, you, you talk it out, you, one person says they're sorry, the other person says I forgive you, and you shake hands or whatever, and it's resolved out here. But the question really is, did it get resolved at, the, at, at this level, in, in the level of the courts of your temple, or are you still carrying the residue or the charge, let's say it that way, the emotional charge of the experience? Did you ever resolve it inside your own system? Or are you still carrying it? And so we can resolve it out here and say, yes, we've made peace, but we haven't made peace with it in here. And so we carry it with us. And so that and so what really what happens is, is that you begin to scan the environment. You begin to anticipate other types of situations. But now your filter is based on this, this whole unresolved experience that you had. So the next time a similar experience comes or the next time you have an encounter with that same person, you're already intuitively anticipating based on the unresolved resolved stuff that's going on inside you and that's becoming the filter then that is giving shape and form to your experience even before you have it it's crazy isn't it now jesus when when he's teaching he he he, in mark 11 he says something that's really astounding to us here let's see if i can because Mark 11, we know Mark 11, particularly if you were in the faith movement for any time at all, you know, Mark 11, 22, 23 and 24. And, and we would open up our Bibles and we'd begin to talk about it. And Jesus really did say this. A, a faith preacher didn't make this up. This actually originated from the mouth of the master. He says, have faith in God. Jesus answered, truly, I tell you, if anyone, anyone says To this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. 
And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your father in heaven may forgive your sins. Now, lots of times when I heard this taught, lots of times when I taught it, I was guilty of versitis. You know what versitis is? It's when you just pull a verse out of its context and throw it at people to try to make a point. And you can't not do it, right? But, but when you take this verse and you put it back inside the narrative, you put it back inside the object lesson that Jesus was teaching. And you include verse 25, which we never did. We, we always said, have faith in God. You can move mountains. If you speak to the mountain, you don't doubt in your heart. If you believe that you've received it before you get it, then you'll have it. But how many of us kept reading where Jesus said, but if you have anything against anybody, forgive them. That your Father who is in heaven might also forgive you. So when we put it back inside of its context and we begin to think about this, here's what I think. I, I think that the, you know, I mean, first of all, let me, let me back up because I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Really what Jesus is teaching here is that our thoughts and feelings have co- real consequences in the world around us, isn't he? Because he's saying if anyone speaks to the mountain, if anyone believes in their heart what they say, they can have it. So this totally validates what I've been saying because I've been saying that prayer, the kind of prayer that we're talking about, is not a prayer where we're praying to God and expecting God to do something. Where it's like we're disconnected from Him and we're hoping we get the prayer right or we say it right or we say in Jesus' name or we plead the blood of Jesus enough or whatever it is that we think we have to do to get God to respond and move the mountain for us. But Jesus is teaching a totally different model and a totally different framework. And He's saying, look, if you have faith in God, you'll speak to creation. You'll speak to the mountain and the mountain will respond to your voice. You'll believe that you received something and what's in your environment will respond to what you're believing that you've already received. So that this isn't the kind of disconnected prayer. This is a prayer actually of union with God, whereas God's image bearer and as God's son and in God's daughter and as his ambassador and as his representative to creation, you and I are standing in a place really of, of incredible influence where our thoughts and feelings affect the world around us. And this prayer is a prayer spoken to creation and creation responds to your voice, to your thoughts, to your feelings, to your beliefs. And what the heart math experiment is telling us is that we can anticipate an event before it happens. So perhaps Jesus is even telling us that if we conceive the answer in our heart before the event arrives, we actually become co-creators of the answer to our own prayer. Or at least co-participants or co-laborers with it. Now, I want to be clear, you're, you, you, know, you don't become with this sort of, the, the idea that comes to my mind is the Aladdin movie. How many of you saw the Disney movie Aladdin? And, you know, where he wants to become an all-powerful genie. <laughs> right? And so you never become, we, we can never expect to become this all-powerful genie where we can just can control every, every outcome and every aspect and move every mountain that's in our lives. But by the same token, Jesus is very clearly teaching us that we are not victims of our circumstances and we are not victims of our situation, but that that we actually just just by thinking and feeling and believing, we have the power to influence the creation around us and we have the power to participate in creating our own answer and releasing it into the earth. 
that you can conceive in your heart by believing that you've received. You can conceive in your heart the answer to your own prayer and you can release something that creation then begins to, that begins to influence the world around you. So that literally you begin to sort of attract things into your life. And so then, if, if that's true, then we have to begin to think, okay, I, I, my thoughts and my feelings are, are this attractor, and so I have to be responsible for them. So then what happens if my thoughts and feelings are negative, toxic, disempowered? Here, here's one way that we can think about how this works. Um, if you've ever been traumatized if you've ever told yourself a victim story where you 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 play the lead role as the victim in your own story somebody else did something to you and your life stinks because of it now that may be true that may be absolutely true out here but the problem is if i begin to build a narrative in my own thinking and feeling processes that i am the victim what kind of signal do i begin to send, send out see see if if i get stuck in my victim story literally what i'm doing is is i'm 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 beginning to create something that can that can actually attract victimization and more victimization into my life because whether we like it or not, there are perpetrators out there. There are people deliberately looking for someone else to victimize. So let me ask you this question. If, a, if, if we all have this intuitive ability in our heart, then the perpetrator has it just like the victim has it. So that means, and we're all kind of connected in this thing, so we can walk in, that means a perpetrator can walk into a room and, 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 and begin to intuitively sort of scan the environment, and what do you suppose that the perpetrator's looking for? Someone who's accustomed to playing the role of the victim. <laughs> certainly, certainly intuitively, the, the heart's going to send a signal. If there's somebody who's confident, if there's somebody who's, who, who's, who's, who's exuding power and peace and joy, there, there's not going to be a resonance there. But if there's somebody who comes in who's, who's feeling small, who's feeling rejected, who's feeling powerless or whatever, you're, you're, you're sending off sort of a signal. Do you, do you see how that can begin to work? And so, so you can almost begin to send off this unconscious signal that says, hey, now, but trust me, I'm not trying to blame the victim by any means. What I'm trying to do is help you understand how powerful your thoughts and your feelings are. There's never a validation for someone to victimize someone else, and it's never appropriate to blame the victim. But it is appropriate to help you understand that you don't have to stay a victim if you don't stay one in your thinking and feeling. And that if you are stuck in a cycle, you can break the cycle. But the cycle has to be broken by dealing with what's going on at this heart, mind, body level first. See, we worked the problem out here, but I don't know if anybody's ever really taught us how do we work the problem in here. And what Jesus is showing us is He's saying, look, before you can be an effective house of prayer for the nations, the thieves and the robbers in your own temple have to be cast out first. The money changers and, and, and the religious merchandisers have to be overturned in your thinking and feeling and physical system first before you can be effective in prayer. But then it begs the question, why did he kind of turns it around when he teaches his disciples about it? See, when he's teaching Mark 11, 22, 23, 24 and 25, he's teaching the same principle. But it, but it, it begs the question, 
Why does he reverse the order? See, in the original order, so if, if the thieves and the robbers are this toxic state, then he's saying you've got to get those cleansed first before you can be effective speaking to the mountain. But when he teaches it, he says you can speak to the mountain and make the mountain move before he gives you the key about how to deal with the thieves and the robbers in your own temple. And that key is if you have anything against anybody, forgive them that your Father who is in heaven may also forgive you. Why doesn't he start with teaching about forgiveness and then talk about how you can move mountains? I have a theory. Because anytime you're in a place that you have to forgive, you've been victimized. Now, I've done a bunch of counseling over my years of ministry and just, just I've done a lot. And most people that come for counseling, they come... Because they've already been working on themselves. So they've already read self-help books or they've already been to seminars or they watch something on YouTube or they have they have some idea. They've already most of the time they've already diagnosed themselves. They come in and say, this is what's wrong with me and here's why it's wrong with me. And what I've discovered almost without fail is they're almost always incorrect about cause and effect. You know, they did, they did experiments back in the 70s with therapy. And the 70s was kind of a booming era for therapy modalities, for types of therapy. And there's many, 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 many different types that you can, that you can have. And so this one guy did a lot of studies, took thousands of, of clients of therapists who used various different modalities of talk therapy with them. Are you tracking with me? And, and what they wanted to know was which therapy was most effective, <laughs> So they would survey the person before they went into therapy about their quality of life, how they felt, what their issues were. And then they would survey them after they had concluded their therapy about how much improvement they had gotten. And what they were looking for was a pattern on which modality worked the best. And the problem was, was as, as they examined the evidence, what they began to discover was there was no consistency. They couldn't point to one particular type of therapy and say this one was more effective than that one. So when, when they couldn't find an answer in the therapy, they began to look at what is the consistent thing about the client that perhaps is facilitating the breakthrough. <laughs> and they discovered it had nothing to do with the therapist and it had nothing to do with the therapy that was being used. It had to do with the way the participant was working through the therapy, whatever therapy it was that they were receiving. And they found a common denominator. Would you like to know what that common denominator was? They discovered that the person who got the most breakthrough was the people that got the most breakthroughs were the ones that were the most in touch with their physical bodies. They were most in touch with their feelings. So we have a tendency, especially with painful situations, to abstract, to try to get away from the pain. And so we move away from the experience, the felt experience in our body. We almost move outside of our temple. And we move into some kind of an abstract idea about why we are the way we are. And we think if I can work on it at the level of the, of, of the abstraction over here, are, are, you, are you tracking with me? So, so instead of dealing with the real feelings in the body, we say, well, I was abused as a child. Therefore, my relationship over here is not working. And I know my relationship over here is not working because I was abused as a child. That's sort of this abstracting that we do. But when you allow yourself to be in touch with your feelings, you're entering into the courts, you're entering into that cycle of information. And when you begin to enter into that cycle of information, oftentimes it leads you to a totally different issue or cause than what you 
thought occurred in the first place. Proverbs chapter 4, one of the verses in Proverbs chapter 4 says that the, the wicked walk in darkness and stumble. They do not know what makes them stumble. Now, that's not to say if you're coming to therapy that you're wicked. It just means to say that if you have a problem, it's because you're not walking in the light. And if you're walking in the darkness, oftentimes you don't know what makes you stumble. Right? But in work, but there is one other common thing in working with people that have been traumatized. Doesn't matter with the trauma. The one consistent thing is, is that when someone needs to extend forgiveness, the situation for which they need to be able to forgive, they did in that moment or those moments in their lives, they had their power taken away from them. So naturally, they have an experience, a felt experience of being powerless. And naturally, they build a story, a narrative inside their mind about them being powerless. So when you are told to forgive, to even think about the situation that needs forgiveness puts you automatically in a state of powerlessness. And the reason it is so hard for people to forgive is because they're trying to forgive from a position of powerlessness. So Jesus, and, and, and when you're powerless and you're forgiving, you begin to feel like you're validating the experience. You begin to feel like you're validating the person who victimized you or perpetrated against you, which actually only increases the sense of powerlessness that you were already feeling to begin with. And I think Jesus knew something about human nature. So he starts it out not by saying you need to forgive. He starts it out by saying you have incredible power. You have power to move mountains if you want to. You have power to change situations in the world if you want to. You have power to participate in your own answers to prayer and create the future together with God if you want to. If anyone says to the mountain, be removed. If anyone believes in their heart, they can have what they believe that they receive. In other words, he, he puts you in a position of power first and then says, if you have anything against anyone, forgive them. Because now I'm working not from a state of powerlessness. Now I'm working from a state of being incredibly powerful. So here's the logic of Jesus in it. If an incident happens to you and you internalize and it becomes part of your, your, your nervous system, it becomes part of, it, it, it begins to disrupt the flow between the heart and the mind and the body with this sort of toxic, powerless victim stance. But your thoughts and feelings have the ability to influence outcomes. So now what are you doing? Now you're actually, because you're so powerful, you can actually influence and draw those things to yourself. Not because you're powerless. Not because everybody got together and said, hey, let's pick on you. You know, they didn't have a secret meeting behind your back where everybody got together and said, you know, make sure you kick them when they're down. But you say, but that's been my experience. Well, perhaps it's not because you're so powerless. Perhaps it's because you're so powerful and you're not able to resolve what's going on inside you. And so unconsciously you're drawing those things to yourself over and over and over again. And so perhaps the way out of the cycle is to embrace your power rather than continually rehearsing your story of powerlessness, which is why a lot of talk therapy will make you worse instead of better.
Because you just keep rehearsing your same old story. And a good therapist is trained in college to validate that story. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus says, you've got incredible power. Now, because of that, take responsibility for what you're thinking and feeling. And from a position of power, now be able to manifest forgiveness. So how do we do this? I want to give you some simple steps, all right? The first thing Jesus did, he didn't just go into the temple and get mad and start overturning tables. If you read the story, he goes in the day before and he surveys the temple. So the first thing you've got to do is you've got to, you've got to find out where you're at. You know, denial is not just a river in Egypt. <laughs> the best breakthrough you'll ever get in your life is when you're determined to tell yourself the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth about where you're at. So what, what I would suggest you do is, is your heart knows. You have to begin to give your heart a voice. Part of the problem is we've been living too much out of the narratives that we've created in our minds. So you can just dial down. This would be prayer. This is prayer right here. Where you just dial down and you go into your heart and you begin to listen to the voice of your heart and you ask a simple question, what or who is the first situation I need to deal with? See, if you do it from your head, you're going to stay stuck in whatever you think's wrong with you and work in the solutions that you've been trying and aren't working. But if you can learn how to just draw your attention down into your heart and listen from your heart and listen from your feelings and listen from your body, and then you can just ask your heart and say, what is the first person or situation I need to deal with? And I've never had it not work where immediately a memory comes to mind or immediately someone's face pops up in my brain. And so that's the first one. I need to go to deal with. And then what we usually try to do is move right into forgiveness. So, Because we're good Christians, right? So we know we're supposed to forgive. So I need to forgive that person who did this. And we move right into forgiveness. But we, buy, we, we sidestep the most, maybe the most crucial piece. And that is to actually feel the experience. Now, people are afraid to feel the experience because it's been stuck for so long. <laughs> you're afraid you're going to get stuck there. It's like, how do I swim in the feeling without drowning in it? Like, I want to cross this river. I don't want to get carried away by it. But I can't cross the river if I don't get in it. I can't swim across the lake. If I, you get the metaphor. So I've got to allow myself to feel it. Now, here's, this is a real deception to think you're going to get stuck in the feeling. Because you never get stuck in the feeling. What you get stuck in is your own narrative. You get stuck in your own story or stories that you keep telling yourself. I'm not talking about the story. I'm talking about allowing yourself to experience the felt feeling inside your body. And I've found almost without fail, you can resolve the feelings if you can get out of the story. So what I would say is describe the feeling. Now, invariably, when you're doing this with a group, I've done this with groups, I've done this in therapy, and you say, what are you feeling? And people say, I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling depressed. I'm feeling sad. Those are not actually feelings. Those are actually concepts. There's a story. If you say, you cannot be angry without a story. You cannot be depressed without a story. 
Those are not feelings. Feelings have to do with textures. Feelings have to do with hot or cold. Pressure, not pressure. Heat, <laughs> location. I'm feeling, I feel like I got kicked in my stomach. Okay, now that's a feeling. I feel rejected. That's not a feeling. I feel like I got kicked in the stomach. Now you're dealing with feelings. And that's one surefire way to stay out of your story. <laughs> Unless you start saying, who kicked you in the stomach? <sighs> but if you can just disconnect and stay with the feeling. Because here's the thing. You're, God built you to work. And God built you to be healthy. And God built you to self-correct. So you're built in such a way to actually, just like you're built to eat food and then get rid of the stuff you don't need. You're built to have experiences in life and be able to process what's waste for you or what's a thief and a robber and get it out. But you've got to let the system, you, you can't be, I know people get upset when I use this term, but, but you can't be emotionally constipated and have this thing work for you. And if you're trying to control your feelings with your thoughts, it's going to lead to emotional constipation. I'm just saying. Because the experience does not begin up here. The experience begins right here. So the feeling, the intuitive feeling, really the emotion precedes the thought. But the emotion combined with the thought creates the feeling. Make sense? So I have to let myself feel it. I have to stay out of my story. And then, and then I do take the step of forgiveness. But now, let's talk about what forgiveness is and what it isn't. First of all, in the Bible, forgiveness never has to do, it's not an emotional thing um, like we think about it. The Greek word literally means to release something. So when you're forgiving, you're not, you're never saying, it was okay. You know, we're even teaching our kids when something legitimate happens and one of the brothers apologizes to the other and says, I apologize. You know, I'm sorry that that happened. And the natural response is, it's okay. And we correct them and say every time, no, it's not okay. But you forgive them. So you're not, you're not validating what happened. You're not validating the person. All you're doing is cleansing the toxic emotions that are keeping you stuck. All you're doing is getting a thief out of your temple. So you're literally not dealing with the event and you're not dealing with the person. You're dealing with the feeling and the judgment that is inside your own life about the person and about the situation. And you're just allowing yourself to experience it, but then not hold on to it. Release it. So, so here's how I've done this. Jesus said this. Jesus said, out of your heart will flow what? Rivers of living water, right? And he said, that's the Holy Spirit. Another place, Paul says, the love of God has been shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit. And so I begin to create a mental image of this incredible life and power, this incredible, powerful river that's just flowing out of my heart. Now, if it's flowing out of my heart, where is it flowing? What direction is it flowing? It's flowing away from me, Right? So you can take a feeling, any feeling you have, I feel like I've been kicked in the stomach, 
And if you concentrate, you can move that feeling from your stomach and you can move it up into your heart where that flow of life and power is. And so I just I just concentrate and move that feeling up. And when it hits that river, I just let it go in that river and it flows in the river of God's mercy, in the river of God's love, in the river of God's life and God's power. It just begins to flow away from me. I can take a picture. If I get a picture of the event or a picture of the person, I can change it almost into a photograph and I can stand at the river and I can let that photograph just go down the river and just release it all the way away from me. In fact, I think it'd be better if we read it, the verse this way. Instead of saying forgiveness, I think if we said, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, release them. That your Father in heaven may release your sins. See, we read that all wrong. We think God's holding on to the sin. If you read that really legalistically, you say, unless you forgive, God won't forgive you. (laughs) If you're holding something against somebody else, God's going to be holding that against you. (laughs) How much sense does that make? But what if we read it the way it's actually written? If, if you holding on to anything, release it, that your Father may release your sins. Not that He's holding. See, if, if, if you really have a lot of this and you're really stuck, you, you probably need some help. That doesn't have to come from a therapist. You don't have to pay a, a ton of money. It doesn't have to come from somebody in the church. It can. Or maybe you just have a good friend that you can sit or someone in your life. That can be very therapeutic that you can just sit and you can talk with. But make sure this person is a non-judgmental presence for you. An accepting presence. Because see here, I, I think Jesus is actually saying the opposite of what we think about God, because as you're walking through this process, as you begin to discover the thieves and the robbers in your temple, you begin to discover areas where you have you and I have fallen short of bearing the image of God. In other words, God is perfect love. His image is perfect love. His image is perfect compassion. And when I'm bitter and angry and hateful, I'm not that. (laughs) And if I have to be that. I won't give myself permission to even survey my temple. Much less deal with what's inside. So I think actually what it's saying here is, as you go through this process, you're going to discover the sins in your own life. And as you discover the sins in your own life, have assurance that your father's not, he's not there as a judging presence. He's there as a witnessing, loving, healing presence. And he's going to work with you to release you from all these toxic states. So as you release them, there comes a grace and a power from heaven that moves that hate out of your system, that moves that anger out of your system, that moves that fear and that anxiety and that depression out of your system. So that you can be a congruent powerful, mountain-moving force in the earth. And then finally, you need to bless them. And I don't want to take a lot of time on this because I want to tell you a couple stories. 
But blessing just means I'm wishing good. I'm wishing good on myself. I'm wishing good on the other person. That's kind of where we get stuck. But again, it's not about that person and the situation as much as it is you're managing your own power. I'll tell you a couple things how this works. Oh, and then you repeat the process. Because <laughs> for most of us, it's not just one person we're holding one thing against. <laughs> just saying. Picture those people. Let me, hopefully, I couldn't get this to come up first. Yeah, there it is. I'm going to read you a quote. Nothing good ever comes from anger. Any good, any goodwill gesture in my book will win over anger any time. Those words were penned by Eva Kor, who is the lady in the picture. An 81-year-old Auschwitz survivor after she was kissed and embraced by a former guard during his trial. Former Sergeant Oscar Groening, who is the man in the photo, is being tried in Germany as an accessory to the murder of at least 300,000 Jews at Auschwitz. Groening, now 93, admits he kept watch as thousands were led to the gas chambers at the concentration camps. Kor, who was subjected to horrific medical examinations and experiments at Auschwitz, testified last week at Groening's trial. On Friday, she approached the former SS guard in court. And she wrote an op-ed for the Times of London that she wanted to thank, quote, thank him for having some human decency in accepting responsibility for what he has done. She wanted to thank him. Groening's reaction, however, took Cor and everyone in the courtroom by surprise. He kissed Cor on the cheek and embraced her. Quote, I was a little bit astonished, said Kor, who, according to the Times of Israel, traveled from Indiana to Germany for the trial. Quote, it was not planned. This is what you see when you see two human beings interact. He likes me. How about that? I'm going back to the U.S. with a kiss on my cheek from a former Nazi. On Friday, she shared a photograph, this was written some time ago, she shared a photograph on Facebook of her and Groening holding hands. She penned in a long caption to accompany the moving image, quote, I know many people will criticize me for this photo, but so be it. It was two human beings 70 years after the fact. For the life of me, I will never understand why anger is a preferable gesture to goodwill. Anyone know who this is? This lady's name is Immaculate Illabagiza. Sorry, Illabagiza. Immaculate Illabagiza. Anybody know who she is? She wrote a book called Left to Tell. And she was a victim in 1994 of, well, she survived 1994 Rwandan genocide. Anybody? See the movie Hotel Rwanda or know about the Rwandan genocide. Rwanda was a nation of about 10 million people, about the size of Maryland. And there was primarily two tribes. There were Hutus and there were Tutsis. And the Tutsis were outnumbered about nine to one by the Hutus. And one particular evening in 1994, the government took every male aged 14 and older, 
and issued them a machete. And the entire country shut down and stopped operating. Schools closed. Businesses closed. Because people were given one mandate by their government. They were to hunt down Tutsis wherever they could find them and kill them with machetes. Probably one of the most startling and disgusting examples of ethnic cleansing and genocide in most of us our lifetime. She hid in a bathroom. There was a pastor who hid her and several other women in an extra bathroom that he had in his home. They thought it would just be for a few days, and they were given strict instructions. You cannot speak to one another, lest someone hear you and know, because they were going house to house looking for what they called Tutsi cockroaches or rattlesnakes so that they could kill them with machetes. They estimate one million Tutsis died in the genocide. And they said, you can't flush the toilet. You can only flush the toilet when the toilet in the other room is being flushed. You have to time it just right. And they thought they'd only be in that bathroom for a few days, but they ended up in the bathroom for, what was it, over three months. Three months. Five or six women cramped in this bathroom, unable to talk. And there were a couple of occasions where a man from her school, someone that she knew, someone that she had spent time with him and his kids, someone that she trusted, had shown up in the house looking for her because he knew it was the last place that she had been seen. And he was there with a machete and he was intent on taking her life. It was the same man who had killed her father and her brother the night before, the day it all began. And he's going through the house and he's calling for her and calling for her. And she describes in her book that the terror that she was experiencing, the, the, the tremendous stress and tension and pressure that she was going through. You can just imagine. And twice they came looking for her and didn't find her. And she found herself so angry and so full of hate towards the Hutus. And she had in her mind the way that she was going to, once she got out of this, how she was going to go and train and join the military and kill Hutus. And she, um, she wanted to survive, and so she's a Catholic girl, and so she was praying the Lord's Prayer to our Father. But she said, every time I got to forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, she couldn't pray that part of the prayer. And months in that bathroom, not able to speak, in fear for their lives processing this situation and she said one day she began to look at the tiles on the bathroom wall and she began to she she created a collage and on one side she had pictures of the Hutu people that had perpetrated against her tribe and with them she put pictures of people like Hitler and Stalin and other monsters and then on the other side she began to fill it out with people People she knew had suffered injustices, but they had a different approach. She began to fill in those tiles with pictures of people like Mother Teresa and Martin Luther King Jr. and Nelson Mandela and Gandhi. And she began to look at the lives of those people and she began to say, you know, they suffered 
injustice. But they chose a different response. And as she began to process this and she began to look at the Hutus and Hitler and and she began to see her face on that side because she realized the same hatred and the same anger and the same fear that was driving her enemies was taking over her own soul. And she realized that she very easily could end up a face inside that collage. And so she made a decision. See, it takes power. Incredible power, even over your own self. To say, I'm going to make the decision. She'd look at Mandela, Martin Luther King, and Mother Teresa. She began to put her face on that side. So after the whole thing was over and the man who had been trying to kill her, the man who had actually killed her, her father and her, her brother was in prison and she wanted to go see him. She wanted to go visit him. She just wanted to face him just for her own therapy. She didn't have any outcome or anything. She just wanted to be able to look at him and face him as a way of facing and conquering her own fears. And the, the man who was in charge of the jail, he was, he was also a Tutsi. And so when they put her in a room and they were going to bring the man in, the man hands her a club and tells her, uh, I will protect you. Do whatever you need to do to feel better. You can hit him as many times. You can do whatever you want to hurt him. And I will protect you and allow you this therapy. So she's confronted with the man and she's sitting there, if you can imagine it, with the with the stick and she's looking at the man who was trying to kill her and looking at the man who had killed her family so filled with hate. And she's just looking at him and she's got the means. And I have to believe she's going back to that wall and thinking which which collage of pictures is going to find my face. She said it wasn't planned. She said, without thinking about it, something just rose up out of her being. And she spoke the words. She said to him, I forgive you. And it was over. And she said, after she came out of that experience, she, was, she would laugh and she would have joy. And other friends would say, it's too soon. It's too soon to get back to life as normal. It's too soon for you to be laughing and joyful, peaceful. And incidentally, the man in charge of the jail was very furious with her. Told her she dishonored the memory of her father and her brother. See, here's two people... Here's two examples of people who went through stuff I can't even begin to imagine. Who were able to look at their perpetrators and forgive and bless and not curse and even have appreciation. We're incredibly powerful. As human beings. 
And really, you know, a lot of what Jesus taught, it wasn't about just trying to make you a good person or an ethical person. It wasn't about do this so God feels good about you. Really, it was about helping us awaken to our own true nature, our own true self, the fullness of our power and our potential. And so he tells us to forgive so we can operate at the level that we need to operate. He tells us to bless those that are our enemies so that we can operate at the level that we need to operate. So that we can be a force for love and joy and goodness in the world. And not a force for cursing and hatred and division. That you and I really do have the power to change the world, to repair the world, to make the world a better place. And a lot of it just depends on how we manage those little hurts, those little slights, those little offenses. Are we going to retaliate? Or are we going to extend mercy and compassion and blessing? Because ultimately, all of us have to decide which tile our face is going to be displayed on. Is it going to be a tile, tile that's ruled by hatred and fear and anger? Or is it going to be a tile that can heal the world? You may never do any, hopefully, you know, probably none of us in this room will ever do anything the magnitude of a Mother Teresa or a Nelson Mandela or, and God forbid we ever do anything the magnitude of those other people. But I think if it was important to Jesus that we can make our world a little better as we confront that same decision that Immaculate confronted in that bathroom. And you and I have the power by the grace of God to get the thieves and the robbers out of our temple so that we can become a force of prayer in creation and for all nations that moves mountains and changes the world. I believe that with all my heart. Would you stand up, please? Father, we bless you. Let's just lift our hands. Father, we bless you. Lord Jesus, we love you. Holy Spirit, we welcome your moving and your wonderful anointing and healing presence in this place. And Father, I thank you right now that your anointing is moving over our hearts and over our minds. And it is removing the power of bitterness, removing the power of fear, removing the power of anger. And releasing unto us the power of joy and love and forgiveness and peace and grace and mercy. Lord, bless your people today. And for every person, Father, that has a wound in their soul. Something that's tearing at the very fabric of who they are. Lord, I thank you. That your healing ointment right now is being applied in the name of Jesus. The healing grace of Christ 
to mend your soul, to heal your mind, to cleanse your body, to free your nervous system of all toxic states. In the glorious and wonderful name of our Master and our Lord, Jesus Christ, we pray. God bless you. Thank you. Amen. Amen. What a what a message. Thank you, Aaron. Praise God. Well, if if you would like uh, some individual prayer today about that or uh, anything else, if you have something you want to pray with, we'll have some of the prayer team up here to pray with you. Um, women, make sure you sign up at the back for the the luncheon on Friday. Today's the last day to sign up for that. And uh, other than that, we'll see you Wednesday night at seven o'clock and next Sunday. Have a have a great day.